Welcome to Nature Knows, conversations with wild warriors and changemakers. I'm your host, Jen Vitanzo, and this podcast is all about nature, both the wild kind outside our front doors and the humankind written within our DNA. Each episode showcases an individual who has dedicated their efforts to create a better today to ensure we have an actual tomorrow, and they are using their unique creative fingerprints to do it. From PhD students to Grammy winners, community organizers to outdoor educators, engineers to multimedia artists, these are the wild warriors and change makers constructing the bridges necessary to connect us all, human to human, species to species, worlds to worlds. It's in our nature to want a sense of purpose. If you haven't already found it, maybe this crew of amazing individuals will inspire you to find yours. Hi, and welcome to Nature Knows, conversations with wild warriors and change makers. I am your host, Jen, and this is our first episode. Our guest today is a woman named Sarah Johnson, and she is the founder of Wild Rose Education. I chose her to be the first guest because in order to understand the world, you have to learn about it, and it all starts with education. So without further ado, I will let Sarah tell you her story. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy it. Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. It's been a crazy reality, but other than that, you know, things I have a lot to be grateful for. So give us a quick brief intro of who you are and what you do and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So I, I am on in Western Colorado in Carbondale where Wild Rose Education has, is based and we're up in the mountains at 6,000 feet. And I originally though, I'm from Southwest Missouri, very rural um, community, um, literally out in the middle of nowhere. So, but I've been here in Colorado since 2004. So it's been a, it's been an awesome, it's become my home. Yeah. What's the saying? I think it's once you've been somewhere seven years, it's officially become like you've, yeah. become, uh, you've become a native. <laughs> you yeah, exactly. Well, I, I was born in Colorado, so I, I can call that, I can pull that card. Oh, you, so you were officially, <laughs> you technically are officially from Colorado. Okay. Even that way. Yeah, but I grew up in Missouri. I mean, that's a side note. <laughs> Can you kind of give us a little bit more background about Wild Rose Education, like where it came from in terms of the genesis of it and then what you're doing with it? Yeah, so Wild Rose Education it came about in 2015 as um, I had worked in the environmental education field for many years and had worked with nonprofits and national parks and wilderness trip programs and lots of other kind of things in between. And, but in 2015, I was to the point of kind of outgrowing my position and it was time to, to spread my wings and see what was possible and not necessarily know what was going to happen. And I was also halfway through grad school. So I was, I was busy and, um, but then I quickly, or not, and so then um, I started getting some contract work uh, that was mostly around the, in the, um, in the water and watershed science and river science and water uh, and public lands conservation realm. And, and those projects, some of them were one-off projects and some of them started to, I started to realize that they were going to repeat year after year if I wanted them to. And so I just kind of 
got on, got on the, uh, the bandwagon and just went for it and just said, okay, this is what's going to happen. And it, w it actually did not start as Wild Rose Education. I was just Sarah Johnson, LLC. Um, and it wasn't until about a year later that I realized that there was an opportunity to actually create a business name and uh, be a little more formal about things and be able to put my logo on on publications and things. So Wild Rose Education came about in, I guess, 2016 because things were moving forward in such a good direction. Um, and today, Wild Rose Education has become um, where it is today. I feel like it's, it's always evolving and always being um, responsive to the, the world that we live in. And it's super flexible. And in some ways, that's exciting. In other ways, that's a little um, un unknowing. Um, but Wild Rose Education today is a, an innovative environmental education, small woman-owned business. We, we, you know, the focus is on professional development for educators, um, youth leadership development, as well as other environmental education con contracting and independent consulting kinds of one-off projects. But those, those teacher professional development workshops and graduate classes and the Youth Water Leadership Program are really the big buckets of, of work and excitement and possibility that I that have been happening now. Some, some of those programs have been happening for four years now and just keep repeating. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. That's awesome. And your youth, well, excuse me, youth development, leadership development, how, what are the ages or where does it start? Like what's the youngest and yeah, so how the program is designed is that the, the primary audience is high school teenage, high school youth, teenagers. Um, however, there's always, because, because I make the rules, and if there's interesting people who are, have really strong interests and passions, um, we can always flex the rules as, as it may fit within the somewhat of the guardrails of the program. And so there, at times, are seventh and eighth graders involved. And at other times, there's you know, um, undergraduate students from the local community college have been involved, as well as some other university students from further afield. And so, but that, but the target target group is really like 14, 15, 16 year olds. And and this year, because it's going virtual, we're able to expand the geographic reach to include the entire Upper Colorado River Basin, which yeah. is basically Western Colorado, Eastern Utah. Northwest, I'm sorry, Northeast Arizona and um, Southwest Wyoming. And, and so it's a very rural part of the United States, but there it's the upper Colorado river basin. So it's where all the water comes from for the Colorado river primarily. And, um, and so to be able to expand to that reach from the Navajo reservation to Rocky mountain national park um, down to Lake Powell, I just feel like is a, a kind of an unprecedented possibility so we'll yeah. see what happens. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a big swath of land. And yeah, there's so much within that too. So you can yeah. reach so many different communities that might not necessarily, I mean, so I know that if you're in a city, it might not seem like there's a lot of nature or environmental stuff going on, but there definitely is because there's a lot of organizations that are based in cities. And whether you're just doing sort of citizen science in your backyard and it just happens to be a park in the middle of a city or, you know, you're in more of the suburbs, it just seems like there's more geared towards because it's more centralized. And there's so many outlying areas that just don't get, they, they don't get that opportunity. And something like that seems like mm -hmm. such a brilliant way to reach so many more people and, and give that opportunity and expose more people to the stuff that's out there and how amazing it is. So yeah. Really cool. And I, and I also think that, you know, it's, 
we may live in a more or less densely populated region of the country. However, the Western United States is more people live in towns than live out in rural, like in rural countryside compared to say New York, where more people may live out in the, there's people live out in the country, but um, we don't have as many people living out in the deserts because it's really difficult to live there. And so people are more centralized in small towns, which right. um, is just an interesting, interesting thing to think about. And the other thing is that people of all ages, I think, have a different relationship to the landscape when you live in such a wide open landscape or in a mountainous region or where you just, there's a, it's kind of, you're, it's in your face all the time to have, to see the mountain or see the river or see the desert or see the, whatever the landscape is, the plateau, wherever you may be. Um, I think there's a, there's a different relationship um, than with the landscape than those who live in suburbia. Um, and it's not to say one's more valuable than the other. They're both valuable in different ways. And, um, but I think especially around the agricultural community, the people, people in agriculture have such a strong relationship with the landscape, right. probably more so than anybody else because they have to, to survive. And in, right. in, I mean, to know the seasons and how things grow and, and kids growing up on ranches and um, in farmer, in fields doing, growing melons and, um, all the things we grow in this part of the country. And, and I think that um, in the upper Colorado River Basin, we have, we do have a bit of quite the diversity of landscape and people. And so it's just, it's an exciting, it's just an exciting time to see what will happen. But I'm also seeing it as a grand experiment because we've never done it before. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I've kind of found that living on game reserves and, and living with families that were on the game reserves because you're so remote but you are so very tired to the land around you and so much more in tune with the land around you because you have no you, you have to be whereas i find that with suburbia and having lived in city suburbia and middle of nowhere <laughs> um and and farmland too there is definitely a different relationship and I, I find that in some cases with city and suburbia you can block it out more because you don't have to be so closely connected to we as a, as a species have a habit of missing certain things. We're losing that connection, yeah. um, which is such a shame because there really is such amazing stuff going on out there. Even in your, you know, you're looking at just a plain tree, any tree that you can see with, you know, it's like all this amazing ecosystem with so much just going on within that. And, you know, having conversations with people as to like, well, I don't like rats because they're ugly or they're spreading diseases and they're doing this, or I don't like vultures because they're ugly or they're, I don't, and I'm thinking, Okay, <laughs> but they're doing all these amazing things as well. I mean, they're cleaning up the refuse that we're leaving behind. They're preventing, in some ways, they're like vultures are preventing the spread of disease because they're cleaning up their nature's undertakers, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's so much out there that we've sort of just kind of put on blinders to because <laughs> we can. And, yeah. and I find like being in an area like that where you have it at your disposal constantly and it is integral to your life, your daily life, you have a very different relationship to it and an understanding. And it's, it was always fascinating to me to be around people on game reserves who, you know, you'd have guests that would come in and they would hate hyenas. Like, oh, they're so ugly. But you'd have people in the reserve who like, oh, they're one of our favorite animals because they do such good, you know, they get rid of bones. They get, they, it's, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I think um, a large, I just find myself 
regularly saying this, and I, I said it yesterday as I drug out all my funny pairs of glasses, <laughs> and I, I was telling these teachers, I said, you know, as a, as a science educator or geography educator, whatever, whatever you may think I am, environmental educator, really my job in life is really teaching people how to see and how to, how to have a relationship with what they see. Yeah. And I think, and so I have this silly activity where I have this whole bag of funny sunglasses or funny glasses, they're not sunglasses. And, um, and, and just to make, to make the point that not only how to see, but that the way you see matters and that your perspective is critical to the community, whether, how, however you define that word community, and that your perspective is, um, it's not only important, it's, it's ne necessary for the forward trajectory of a community to come together and, and move forward on whatever it may be. And, um, and, but it's how you see the natural world. It's how you see your neighbor. It's how you understand the purpose of a wetland as a, as a big water filter, like you just described. You know, there's, the natural world has all these jobs. And, but if you can't, if you never have ta been taught how to see and how to be an observer and how to ask questions and how to realize that your questions matter and the way what you do what you are noticing is interesting and is worth sharing and is worth being part of a, a broader discussion and and you can do that through a lens of agriculture you can do that through a lens of a city park you can do that through the lens of a river or a wetland, and I've been fortunate to spend most of my career um, using rivers and um, rivers and public lands, and then this, the concepts of climate change and watersheds as the context for which I teach mostly through. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you can you can teach people how to see using any any uh, context <laughs> that's of of interest or you know is really a part of the the world, the landscape, wherever you may be. It was fascinating you should say that because that's really so much of what I want to get across with a lot of these conversations is the fact that each of us have this unique voice, that each of us has something to contribute, and it's specific to us as who we are as humans. So we're all going to see different things because that's just how we're built. That's sort of in our DNA, and that each of us has something really valuable to contribute. And it's always been interesting when people have asked me particularly how I went from being an artist as a musician to working in conservation in South Africa. I'm like, well, they boil down to the same thing. It's that curiosity about understanding how the world works and sitting back and, and observing and, and interpreting and, and then taking that interpretation and creating something from it. And so I, like in the same way that I would be an artist writing a song where I was, okay, I want to understand this, like this human emotion or this moment or, you know, I want, and then I sit down and interpret it, create something from it, and then that's my output. It's like with a scientist researching something, it's like, okay, I want to understand why this species makes this particular call at this time or only during the season or whatever. And so, you know, you sit there, you find your subject matter, you, so you study it, you, you interpret what you're seeing, you work it against what's already in the scientific narrative, and, and then you put out your findings. What I was just thinking about is like, is as you were saying that, is it's taking, it's being, um, kind of radically curious or so that you can have this like never ending curiosity of one thing leading to the next. And, you know, I, I 
I think in science education, we've been taught traditionally that the scientific method is this very linear thing. You have to have a question and then a hypothesis, and then you do this and you collect, you know, you do tests and you make observations, and then you have results and it's done. And it's like, well, how boring is that? That's not really how the world really works. And if we look at the more recent research and understanding of science education, we realize we are, in, are encouraged to teach that science is a process and that it it goes kind of in circles because one thing goes the thing you ask a question and then you start to investigate and then you realize that you need to ask somebody like a, and you need to find out what they already know about it or you need to do sideline research and then that leads you back to the back to the question and then all of a sudden you're moving a little a few more steps forward and then you get sidetracked because there's something else that's curious and interesting and and it's this very much more of a system than it is this linear path and i think um that that's applies to so many things it's not just that's not just science that's not just science that's, that's just right. how life works and and be able to give voice to that and realize that that's okay or that's actually an exciting way to see the world and to be able to be open to all those possibilities um, i think is a makes for a really rich life as well as if we can teach that process and that way of being to young people like we're setting them up for incredible success, I would imagine, I would hope. Right. Um, and so again, just using, with, but you have to have something, some context, whether it's music or wildlife or, um, or rivers. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really fascinating. I, yeah, it's, I love the fact that you're doing environmental education, in, well, education in general, but also using that, the whole idea of being able to see <laughs> yeah, you should see my my bucket of glasses. They're pretty silly. I love it. Um, but I mean, it's so true. It's so fundamental to it because if you change one little thing, suddenly you're pretty, like, even if you change your setting or um, your the glasses that you literal glasses that you have on, it will change the colors that you're seeing now and yeah. the shadows that you're seeing now. And it's the same way as someone who's painting a painting has to look at something not from the perspective of what's my subject matter, but how does the light fall on it and um, what is the expression and what are the, what, what's the best medium to use and how can I, you know, best capture what it is that I'm trying to convey? And it's the same, like science very much. I mean, they're all very, whether you're talking about like medicine, whether you're talking about finance, you know, they all kind of fall into the same category, which is what is it that I'm trying to achieve? I have to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. Um, I kind of have to get to the root of it and, and use what I have and then keep adding more skills to be able to broaden what I'm putting out there in the world and broaden my perspective and broaden my ability to output more stuff. Um, and whether it's just theories on stuff or actual product or, you know, it's, it's all interrelated. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously your work is, I mean, I think your work is important. I think everyone should think your work is important. <laughs> I, I believe my work is important. I, I believe my work is important. I think that's what keeps me motivated to be so driven and, tenacious to keep after it because I will say that being an independent you know independent business doing this kind of work is at times can be quite challenging and other yeah. times it's like this wide open possibility world of possibility so it's but yeah I, I'm I, I continue to stay motivated so I guess that means my I believe it's important and it's and it is there's there's it's not just important but I there's evidence that I'm here um hear back from learners, whether they're adults or student, you know, adult learners or teenager students, their, um, their feedback in different ways is, is really reassuring and, and extremely hopeful. 
um, to kind of create these opportunities for transformational learning um, is um, makes me feel like my work will last a lot longer than just that maybe hour or five hour interaction I may get with a person. Right. And, um, and I don't want them to necessarily remember me, but I want them to remember what they've learned and what they're learning as they continue to wrestle with this new way of kind of seeing the world or a new way of thinking about concept. And as they continue to work with it and mold it over and, and ask, continue to ask questions. And I'm like, wow, that's success. <laughs> Maybe they even have dinner table conversations later with their friends or their families about whatever the concept is. And it's a new way for them to connect with themselves too, like to yeah. see themselves in a new way, which is- Yeah, I want teachers to know that they are part of the scientific community. They're not just, oh, just the high school science teacher. No, no, no. They are part of the, the, the many spokes of the wheel of the science community. You can have researchers and lab people and all these different people, but educators are incredibly important. And I think a lot of times teachers don't value them they don't they don't get told very often that they're professionals and right. they don't get told that they matter and I think most people in general don't get told that they matter very much are they and so that's all woven into all my work as well yeah, yeah <laughs> I guess I just care about people I care about I care about my community it seems like there's this definite push which I think is fantastic sort of the positivity and saying that you have a voice and it's worth People should be, you know, it's worth getting out there and you are worthy and you have so much to contribute. And I do feel like you're, you're totally to me in the right space, which is kids are so often told to just be seen and not heard and to sort of fit into these little roles. And these are the rules and this is, and, and I understand that rules have a place, take a time and a place, but as as a human being, like one of our main things is our curiosity. One of the main selling points of being a human is this insatiable curiosity and wonder about the world. And I feel like kids kind of sometimes they get a beat out of them. You know, you're not, you just, you have to follow these rules. And I feel like teachers also get stuck being confined to that. And I imagine like as an educator in your position, because you get to be more of an, you're an entrepreneur, but you're not bound as much by those rules. So no. you can work in those little niches and develop things that in other situations wouldn't be as easy to maneuver around. And that's fantastic because you're filling such an important gap that's, that's necessary for development. It's necessary for people finding that connection to themselves, to their communities, to the world around them. Yeah, yeah it's, it's an exciting, it's a, it's a pretty unique space to be able to work because I don't have the bureaucratic boards and administrations that say, you know, that you have to get everything approved by first. I can, you know, decide to make a decision today or I can sleep on it and then make the decision tomorrow, but I can make the decision. And I, a lot of times will um, confide in colleagues or friends or other mentors and folks and before I make a big decision. But a lot of, sometimes I'll just be like, you know what? It sounds to me like there's a big need for like this summer, there's a need for teenagers to have some connection with each other. They are, you know, as we've lived through this pandemic, there, there's a lot of people, everybody needs more connection. And so without much thought, it took, probably took me two or three days, I just decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to offer a weekly um, teenager Tuesday afternoon watershed class club thing and just put it out there and see if anybody's interested. And, and it has unfortunately turned out that not that many people were interested, but 
or unable to, I mean, there are a lot of things that kept it from happening. We, we really still can't get together in person in our community here. And so that I think is the biggest barrier. So, but I, but I was hoping that by the time it was going to happen, it was going to happen. But the, the point of that is I saw there's a need and I, I was like, you know, let's just go on a whim and, and I mean, I can, I know how to do this. Let's see what happens. Or, or more specifically, you know, another a more successful version of the story is that I has, um, the workshops, the graduate classes that I teach this summer, some of them have had so much interest, which I was super surprised by. I just decided, I was like, you know what, let's offer another section. Let's just put another class on the calendar for August. And that class is already two thirds full. And, you know, and I'm kind of like, wow, well, there, there's obviously an opportunity here. And I just, and I just went for it. So, but it is an interesting space to be in because you have to listen for those gaps and you have to um, be really bold and a bit brave and courageous and, uh, and, and have, a, have a sense of, I guess, under, a sense of knowing that what I, I, I guess some days I'm more, I feel this way more than others, but when I'm on my best A game, I, I feel like, you know, the work I'm doing is important and it's valuable and it will contribute to other people's lives and to the natural world's protection. And I just need to keep doing it. Yeah. But some days I don't feel so confident. I think that's gotta be the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur because there is no set path. You don't have a set salary, so to speak. You're not following any particular, you're not climbing any ladder. You're not, there's no, there's no, there's no guidebook, you know? And so as much as like your wins are amazing, your, I mean, when your failures are a little bit earth shattering because you're the one who's, who's suffering the blow. It's like, personally, it's you. It's not like a company can absorb it for you. It's not a, it's yeah. And I imagine like, if you were, a, if you were to talk to a kid about your job that you're doing, yeah, I would imagine you would describe, I mean, it's obviously there's the environmental education, which is, but you're really an entrepreneur. Like you're, yeah. you're like the do yours, like do everything. Cause I mean, you, the stuff that you're doing, you have to be able to, if you're leading kids out into the wilderness, you also have to be responsible for their first aid. You have to be responsible for, so it's not just a. And then I you have to be able to do all the graphic design to be able to yes. sell the program. Yes. So like it goes across, it's everything from liability and first aid. Yeah. From wilderness medicine to graphic design, as right. well as, you know, teaching the actual curriculum and making it really engaging so if I was to tell a kid about what I do um I think what I would tell them is I'm not like I'm like a 13 year old kid like a middle schooler I'd probably tell them that I I'm a teacher because I am I am an educator and I but I'm an I'm not a their traditional classroom teacher I'm the kind of teacher who gets to explore topics and ideas that students, that young people are interested in, and I do a lot of river and water science and river and water geography work, and that I get to help students like themselves learn how to be, how to investigate things that they're concerned about, and then I get to help them learn how to come up with some suggestions or solutions, and finally I get to help young people learn how to talk to elected officials and decision makers and be able to um, share their solutions and concerns with those policy makers and be able to feel confident that they can be public speakers and communicators so they really can feel like they are part of the um, can participate in the community whether it's at the 
town level or the state level or even the federal level. And I, I think that most middle school kids would be able to understand that because they would, and they would start to listen. I think they would be very curious because they're very, I think most middle school and high school students are so t are tuned in to what's going on in the world and they want to figure out how to talk to policymakers yeah. <laughs> about the things they care about. You're literally um, giving them a megaphone for how to change the world. Like you're absolutely. Yeah. Good and then I, and then I would probably tell kids that I, I get to help their teachers get to um, teach their teachers how to take field trips more, make, make field trips more fun and engaging. And I would get, what else do I tell them? I, I, um, yeah, I, I work with their teachers a lot. I also get to work with at the colleges and universities and teach classes to students there. And so that's, I think that's a pretty um, more, it's hard for me to explain what I do exactly, but that's a pretty, that's a good question because it makes me think about it in a 14, 13 year old's perspective. I got to say, I to wrap it up in that you help them change the world. Like, yeah, yeah. You're at the, you're, you're like the, but those are behind the scenes. <laughs> But those are genius helping them change the world. <laughs> yeah. But those are the, I think some tangible concepts that yeah, oh, they absolutely. could wrap their head around. Right. Right. That's really cool. So in terms of your skills and your experiences and things that you're interested in for someone else to be involved in what you do, what would you say has, have, has been, or have been like, is there one or are there several specific things that you think have really come in handy in terms of your skills, your interests, um, and your experiences to help you yeah. continue on, like get to where you are and continue on. Because you've, I mean, you started with an interest in, in nature anyway, right? Yeah, I was, I was doing this kind of, I guess you could call it work. <laughs> I mean, as like a kid, I was going to camp and then I was designing the camp nature program when I was in high school. And I ended up getting my Girl Scout Gold Award by doing that. Um, and that was cool. 20 years ago. And so, yeah, so this people ask for like, if there was ever this pivotal moment. And I, I don't think, I don't ever have a very good answer for that question because I was just born into it. But I think as far as what would, what makes me successful and what I caution people against, um, I think it's so important to work in some type of business or nonprofit that's small enough that you get an opportunity to learn everything. Yeah. You, you learn how to use databases. You learn how to do graphic design. You learn how to market a program. You learn about budgets. You learn about fundraising. You learn about how to work with people, <laughs> and how to um, how to make phone calls, and how to how to engage with people in so many different ways. And I um, and you also learn the content, whether you're working around rivers or wildlife or whatever the content is. That is the part that you can learn and you probably already are an expert at, it's all these other skills that I th I don't know how to learn, how to, I would have ever learned them if I hadn't had those eight years working for a really small conservation nonprofit where I had to learn everything, you know, everything. Some days I was getting to do field river chemistry work. And a lot of days I was in the office learning about how to keep track of donors and how to keep track of um, how to run a website <laughs> and you know and then other days I'd be out leading a naturalist um, a naturalist float where we would go floating down the river in, in inflatable duckies inflatable kayaks <laughs> and you know and that was the sexy work that was fun that was like why I was okay to do all that other stuff 
because right. we finally got to do the thing. But doing of the thing, I think you spend about probably 60 to 70% of your time doing the behind the scenes work. And you really only 20 or 30% of your time is that, that front, that outward, outward work that everybody might see. Yeah. Um, and I caution, I get to talk with grad students a fair amount who are like in their early to mid twenties, sometimes later twenties. And they're, they're convinced that they're going to go to grad school and then they're going to start their own business as an environmental educator. And I pause and I take a deep breath and I just, I, I think their passion and their interest is commendable. And I, um, I just don't see very many people doing work in this field the way that I'm doing it. And I think that's because it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. And because if, if you don't have, have had some big, big world to kind of lean on or learn from previously with all the skills I was just describing, I don't know how, I don't know how you can do it. And I think that's why there's so few people. And so I just, I caution people against this big dream of grad school and then starting their own environmental ed business. And it's, it's amazing how many people kind of have that vision, which again is extremely awesome for the world. I just want them to be successful. (laughs) Right. And so it's almost like, you know, don't burn yourself out right off the bat because you just need, you're missing the skills that you would need to get, to make yourself successful. And, and you, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you can learn them as you go, but you're going to have to deal with a whole very steep learning curve that's going to take away potentially, and it'll probably burn you out because yeah. you're going to be overwhelmed. Um, I, I know I went through that myself with stuff. I was like, I'm just going to do this. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I had to learn everything all at one time. And I was like, this is insane. No, not, <laughs> yeah. There's no, I don't have enough, there's not enough hours in the world ever. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting because I know I've talked to people sort of the same thing in different fields that have been like, I'm just going to jump right into it. And I'm, I'm like, I applaud that. Absolutely. I applaud that belief that you just go out in there and do it. And by all means, don't ever lose that. But I'm, I'm of the same mindset of you, which is take some time. <laughs> it's going to sound terrible, but take some time to make some mistakes on someone else's dime, so to speak. Where you <laughs> like, have like the, yeah. where you have a net to catch you. You have a net to catch you mm-hmm. and you can learn from people that are already doing it, which takes away some of the work that you have to do. You can have a foundation that you can build that people can help you develop so that you have a diving, like a jumping off point that's already solid. Right. Um, yeah. And I would just add to that, not only all of that is really important, but also during those eight years, as well as the previous things I did, um, is the incredible amount of professional networks that I, professional networking. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the local coffee meetups right here in our little town. I'm talking about the statewide and the national professional organizations that I've been fortunate to be part of and not only just going to their conferences, but actually serving in leadership as well as volunteering to um, present and contribute at conferences and teach workshops and not, not get paid to do it. You do it because you're contributing to this greater good of this, of this professional community. And, and the, the, what I have received from those by giving so much, the receiving is, tenfold more valuable. Um, if I didn't, hadn't done, or if I had not invested in that part of the, my life and my professional life, 
um, before 2015, I would not be able to, Wild Rose Education would not exist. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, it was three weeks after I told the world I was, I was leaving my organization that people literally started calling me. They're like, because, and they'd heard through these networks that I was needed, you know, I was available and folks from Denver called me and said, we've heard that you might need some work. Would you like to run this program? And I was like, as a matter of fact, thank you very much. That's amazing. I can't believe I just got this phone call. And, and that's how all of my work has happened. There's, there are not RFPs for this work yeah. there. I'm not responding to posted, you know, calls for proposals anywhere. Those don't exist. Right. At least I don't know where to look for them. Um, so that network and that community and those people have become over the last 10 years, 15 years now are like some of the coolest people I know. And I, you know, I've been grieving the fact that I see them on these zoom calls right now. And we're all supposed to have been at conferences and meetings and we're supposed to be together in all these places. And, and I'm like, I'm grieving the, the feeling of like, Oh, I guess it's wonderful to see you now, but I don't know when we'll get to see each other, maybe in 2021 and like, or 2022, it's <laughs> but it's to have those, that kind of relationship where it's like, it's sad. It's like, I care about them. Those relationships have grown into such genuine, authentic things. They're not just these rubbing elbows, networking things. It's like, we're real humans, authentic people with each other and have right. become friends. And you call on each other with stuff that you're working on and can talk yeah. to each other about. Yeah. So I'm not on, I, I don't work by myself, even though it appears that way. I'm on so many teams and I get to inter integrate so many other people's incredible expertise. And um, it appears that I work by myself, but I don't. I am so fortunate to be part of so many different things with such amazing humans. That's a whole no, no one is an island, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it may seem like you're doing it all yourself. <laughs> and you, and you, with your business to a degree, yes, you are. And you're also like relying on other people that are helping you and you're helping each other. And it is that sense of community. It is that, you know, you have them, they help you. It's all about building each other up for bigger things, bigger and better things. Oh, yeah. And then sometimes you get to celebrate those people and like nominate them for like professional awards and then they get selected and then you get to call them. This just happened last week and you get to call them and say, guess what? I nominated you for an award and you've been selected by this statewide organization. And how cool is that? <laughs> awesome. That is such, I'm, that's such a good feeling. It's yeah. like, I've never understood people that don't celebrate successes of friends and coworkers. And I, I guess, some people just don't, they feel like, well, maybe it should have been me or whatever. And I'm thinking, there, you are you and there's only one you and you have your space and you'll find it. And it's like, it isn't, it isn't a competition in my mind. It's always been about, you know, everybody's got something incredibly valuable to contribute and celebrate yeah. that. And like, and yeah. And it's all so unique. Thank goodness it is because otherwise we'd be really boring. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you what you value, what you value and what I value are a little different. But thank goodness they are, because then we have something to talk about, you know? It's like a standing joke with some of the researchers I worked with. And one works with, one works with Penguin. Um, one works with uh, sociable weavers and pygmy falcons. And then someone else works with, I think it was a hyena person. And that's, they love them each. And they're all extremely important, obviously, for the diversity of the ecosystem and the functioning of the ecosystem. But 
this person just loves that animal. And that's something that's like they're super passionate about. And if we all just love that one animal, all the other ones would probably fall by the wayside and everything would just yeah go yeah. horribly wrong. Because and that's why, wrong. yeah. And I think that's why I've been really appreciating as much as I've been challenged by and has been like mentally stumped, like, okay, now where do I go with this work with the, um, with the really big emphasis and incorporation and um, prioritization of diversity, equity, inclusion work is as not, it's, it's not like something that you just, it's now time to go do diversity, equity, inclusion work. No, it's how to turn that into a lens that you do everything through. And it's, that is a big challenge, but it's in the last five or six years, it's just been so it's been, it's made things even richer. And um, when you think about like I've been teaching these public lands classes and thinking about Native Americans and the trauma in our public, in American history is full of trauma, but we don't really talk about it much. And to have to talk about it, to bring it to the table and to then listen to all these different students' perspectives, as well as all these stories, we read all these stories and get exposure to all these kind of unsung heroes and untold stories. And it's just like, oh my gosh, what a, what a more colorful, rich, abundant story of where we are, you know, being in what it means to be an American. And, but we've, it's, it's added to our, my world. It's added to my perception as opposed to been like a burden or mm-hmm. a, like, oh gosh, well you have to do, no, not at all. It's instead, it's like everybody's perspective and all these stories and I mean, you can only absorb so much. I mean, you can, can't learn it all, but you can start to be aware of more. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not crazy about having lots of stuff, but I love having lots of stories. Right. That's <laughs> and, lots of, right? and lots of perspectives. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating is that we've had such a, a white centric everything in so many fields, especially like there's, you don't get to see a lot of representation of different faces and that that's starting to change. I think is one, it's, it's inspirational for kids growing up to say, Oh wait, I can see myself in this. It's not just all these people that don't look like me or don't come the same from the same background because it tends to become exclusionary. It, It feels exclusionary to say, Oh, well I can't do that because nobody I know, like nobody does that. And yeah, but it's also all these rich, like you're saying, the cultures, it's different perspectives. It's different cultures that are going at something from a different, like a Native American culture might be very differently approaching one thing versus someone with a, like a, a European culture, the cultural background. It's just different. It's just different. And it adds to this complexity and beautiful, like just Ah, beauty yeah. that's the word it makes beauty. it more beautiful yeah. and i think if it's just the context and the lens that we use for everything and it's just the way we operate um i think we have an opportunity to really model for not just our students but for our peers and our families and everybody we come in contact to just kind of be like oh that's that's just how sarah is and that's how she sees things and i want and actually i really appreciate this or that and i want to be more like that right and if like everybody, you know, a huge percentage of people start, even a small percentage of people start just being that way the best they can. I think there's, again, an opportunity for a lot of hope right there. And, um, and by no means am I, I don't have it. Like I said, it's a challenge. I, I have to give my per- myself permission to make mistakes in that arena and give myself a lot of grace to say, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, because it's, it's a world that it's not the world that I, that we were necessarily taught when we were little kids. We're learning. Exactly. We're all learning. You know, we're all learning. Um, 
we were all taught that to be nice and kind, but, but it's, it's like taking that to another, another level. And I just, so I just really thought in a certain lens that we weren't even yeah. aware existed. Again, it's another pair of glasses. It's another exactly. lens. <laughs> it all comes back to the glasses. It's all about how we see. Exactly. That is so yeah. true. Um, so out of, kind of going along with this, it's pretty interesting because the name of your company, Wild Rose, is Wild Rose Education. You chose Wild Rose. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. So I wanted to have a name of a company that wasn't place specific because I, you never know when you might move. And right. so um, it's very easy to around here, especially to think about naming things after the rivers or the mountains or, the, you know, the plants or something. And I was like, okay, I got to pick something that's not place specific. So wild roses live at least all over North America. I don't, they might live all over the world. I don't know. Uh, there's definitely the Rose family is probably everywhere. But um, so that was one big piece of it. The other piece of it is that I have a passion and and have had opportunities to teach about wild places and wild public lands and wilderness. So the word wild kind of symbolizes that. And um, my name is Sarah Rose. And so I have always, I like that name Rose. <laughs> and so that's why my name, that's why turned the company name to Wild Rose Education. And then the logo, you know, you notice that there's, there's a semblance of water in it. So that's blue and there's a bit of a, a wave of a river or some type of body of water right. in the logo. So um, that was a fun project to try to put all that together and try to <laughs> convince, to, to tell the graphic designer, I wanted a wild rose. And they're like, and they start drawing all these domestic roses from the from the flower shops. And I'm like, no, 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 like five petaled wild rose. Right. <laughs> but it was all about my, yeah, so it was very, very intentional. That is, I love, I love that logo. I love that. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Because it's true. It's like, it doesn't, it's not a, one specific thing. It's, well, it is, but it's not like it could be all different species. And like you said, it's found all over the place. So it has that inclusivity and that could have all these stories behind it, which is so symbolic of what you're doing, what we were just talking uh, about. Thank you. Yeah, and if I ever decide to move somewhere else, I can just take it with me. I don't have to start over. Right, right. And, it, and it's, it, it's relatable. So yeah. random question, because I was listening to one of the other podcasts that you were talking about, and uh, um, where you were talking about Leopold. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Okay, so can you tell people a little bit about that and what it is and like who Aldo Leopold is or was? <laughs> yeah, so one of my big heroes, one of my favorite um, conservation and wildlife biology heroes is Aldo Leopold. And Aldo Leopold lived in the early 1900s and he died in the 1950s, I think. And he was a family man. He had a family of, he was, family was really important to him. He was a university faculty and he was a biologist, and he had an unbelievable relationship with the landscape. And he saw, and he was, a, he was an author, and his book that made him famous is called The Sand County Almanac, and it was not actually published until after he passed away. And so his work has been like this pivotal, that work of literature has become a go-to piece of literature that has been translated into hundreds of other languages and is the 
kind of this understanding, it, it's, it articulates an understanding of what a land ethic is and what is an ethic and what's an, what, is a, what does it mean to have a land ethic. And a lot of that has to do with how you steward the land. It's not all about protecting it with capital W designated wilderness. It's more about how, what your relationship with the landscape is and how you steward it and how you take care of it, but also let it be wild. Right. And so my relationship with all of this is that, um, like I said, I was born into this kind of work. My, my parents are um, very much in the same vein of work and philosophy and life as I am. I, and my dad, um, I think, tries to emulate Aldo Leopold and has his, ever since he was probably in his early 20s or whenever he started to have an opportunity to, probably in high school is when my dad really started to have a relationship with a place because that's when he moved from being a military brat moving all over the world. They finally landed on a track of land with a big forest and um, was able to have that relationship with the landscape in a, in a place that was special. So then my dad, um, I think he instilled that relationship with the landscape in all three of us kids. And for me, that looked like, I mean, I have vivid memories of being, a, I don't know, three or four or five-year-old helping my dad plant trees. Like we would go plant acorns. We'd go on peppermint walks, meaning we would eat peppermint sticks. And then we would have our pockets full of acorns and we would literally go plant acorns to try to get more oak trees to grow in these places where there weren't many trees. And in Missouri in the fall or spring, it's muddy and wet and messy and out in the country. And I just have those, I have vivid memories of that. And then, um, as I got older, I got to be part of the process of burning fields because we have an Aldo Leopold. This is the kind, these are the kinds of things Aldo Leopold would do with his kids and his family. And we would burn um, the fields to try to, um, to keep the ecological prairie environment going. Um, you burn, fi fire is used as a tool. It's not always a scary thing. Actually, most of the time fire is not scary. It's, it's a tool for, for ecology in a lot of ways. And I was part of that my whole, my whole life or my whole time at home until I moved away. And, um, and just everything, just because you happen to be fortunate enough to be a landowner doesn't mean that you just are like dominate the landscape. To be a landowner comes with a responsibility to be a, a steward and because that landscape is connected to everything else. And, you're, and I think learning that kind of unknowingly as a little tiny kid and then, um, and then understanding that more and more as I got older and now continuing to be so grateful <laughs> for that understanding. Um, I think is under underlies a lot of where and why I do what I do because when you look at the land ethic, the, Le the Leopold idea of a land ethic, it's I can't quote it perfectly, but it's the idea that everything's interconnected, and everything. It's you have a responsibility to, to um, maintain your to main, yeah to maintain that and and. Yet an ethic is something that, you know, there's all kinds of philosophical conversations you can have about ethics. I mean, I facilitated many of those conversations and what's my ethic versus yours doesn't mean that mine's right. 
just means that that's what I believe based on all this evidence and experience and so forth. So, so anyway, so we actually had a dog named, Ab, named Al at one point in my life because he was named after Aldo Leopold. We also had a dog named Abby at one point. He was named after Edward Abby. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I could go on and on. And I, I just gave a copy of the Sand County Almanac last week to a high school kid who was telling me all about his passion and interest in wildlife and how it's all connected and all this. I said, he's like 17 years old. And I said, have you ever, I have a book. I, I'd like you to read this book this summer. And I collect used copies of it whenever I see them at the library book sales or whatever. And I, so that I can just give them away and I'll, I don't ever need it back, but maybe, maybe he'll open it up and he'll be inspired. I don't know. Right. Well, that's, that's the most you can do actually is just give people <laughs> the, in, basically give them the tools that you can give them and then give them the boost. Yeah. And what they do with that is. Yeah. It's up to them. So that was a long winded answer, but. No, that's, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> There's a, a lot of stuff out there. To, I mean, it's, it's environmental stuff is not one small little thing. It's, I always find it fascinating. People are like, oh, well, you just involved you just care about environmental well, the environment is where you live. So yeah, guess what? Everybody has, everybody has a relationship to the environment because the environment is where you live. It's not something separate. It's right. not like you can say, well, we're working on environmental things now. Well, everything is an environmental thing. Whether right. And it's socioeconomic. <laughs> there are so many factors that go into with regards to um, how it, like, things like climate change, how they disproportionately affect lower income and, and poorer countries and how, you know, it, 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 all over the world, not just like people think, oh, it's just in Africa or it's just in Asia. No, it's everywhere. Like, it's not like the wind just stops at a boundary and says, okay, I'm moving on this way because I can't go poke that. You know, there's like, what happens there is the whole butterfly effect. It's like what happens there carries over. It's all interconnected. We're in an, an enclosed ecosystem that just happens to be a very big planet that, you know, what we do, what is it? Is it? Seattle, Chief Seattle that said it, like what we do to that web affects all of us, the web of life. And, and it's so true. It's like when people want to like parse it out and say, well, that's not it. I, I can't make that priority. I'm like, you kind of have to, because if you don't have an environment, none of this other stuff matters. You can't breathe. You can't drink, you can't eat. It all comes down to like public health. Right. Right. And it, it again, it spans all these things. Like the socioeconomic side of things and how it's like, it's a much bigger picture than, and I think a lot of people have given it credit for, or even made those connections. And yeah, I would just, I'd like to comment on that a little bit and just say that, you know, I think the environmental movement, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, it's, there's been many people have written papers and um, commented on this, is that environmental work looks like a very elitist work. And the people who do environmental work have traditionally been elite people with wealthy people, white people, people with a lot of privilege. And unfortunately, those are the stories that have been told. And those are the stories that have been retold. And that's what gets celebrated. But when you start to dig a little deeper, there's a lot of amazing women of color, especially women, women moms, who are kicking butt and have for hundreds of years making a difference in their community um, on all kinds of environmental issues that affect the health of their children, the health of their communities, the health of their landscapes, their parks, their whatever environmental thing it may be. 
And I think, and not just that, but there's people of the LGBTQ community. There's people of every community that have made a significant difference. And until the environmental community, whatever that even means these days, I'm starting to wonder if we need to redefine what that means. Um, until the general consensus, the, the most told story includes all these poor people. I mean, they're, they're the poor people. They're the people who've been bullied. They're the poor people financially. Until their stories are elevated and celebrated right. and, and they're seen as equals and valued and, I mean, our world wouldn't be the same without them because they're that important. <laughs> and, and yet we haven't, you know, their books haven't been translated to hundreds of languages and, right. you know, it's, I just told the whole story about Aldo Leopold. He's just, he's one of these, you know, old dead white men. Right. There's a lot of those stories. And I think it's a both and. I don't think it's that we have to erase. We don't need to erase any stories. We need to bring, make the story, the storyboard just a little bigger or maybe right. a lot bigger so that the Aldo Leopolds and the John Mears and those folks are still on the board, but they're not the biggest and in the center. They're, they're in, they're on the sidelines or they're just like, you know, part of it, but so are the George Washington Carvers and the, I mean, and the, I don't even, I don't even know the names and that's, that's terrible. We should know the names of who, who are these unsung heroes who are, have made significant difference in the inner cities of Detroit, making sure that their, their, um, their apartment buildings have clean water. Right. Those women are, and men are heroes. Right. Yeah. And they're not the ones we hear about. And, and I don't know, I mean, no, I don't know their stories. I've started to dig into a few more stories than I've known before, right. but it's like this never ending project because it's this, there's so many and they're incredible and they're important. So I think we have to think about what is it, what does the environmental field look like? And maybe how do we need to redefine how we describe it? Because until we redefine it, it's always going to be that, thing that it has been and it, it doesn't create the possibility for what it can become or maybe should have has been for is more accurate more accurately describes what it has become it's like so. the, in many ways the environmental movement is it's the human condition movement <laughs> in the environmental field it's i mean obviously it's all the species because it's, it's the environment i mean it'd be kind of we have to include all of them but so much of humanity and the human condition is tied into our environment, our, whether it's the trees in our backyard or our literal environment, our ecosystem within our, our little our cities or our towns, it's, yeah. it's everything is interconnected. And, and all these stories, like you said, all these stories matter and they're the fabric of which human society is built. And without listening or hearing or even making space for, we're never gonna be able to move forward. We're just gonna keep going in this little bubble, you know, as we go along. and. And that's not solving any problems. One of the issues we ran into in South Africa that was starting to change, thankfully, was they kept looking at a lot of the conservation was just sort of a school of thought with conservation was just in the reserve. What's going on within the reserve? And I was like, those reserves are surrounded by local communities of people who have never stepped foot in a reserve and never seen all of this wildlife because they don't have a few hundred dollars to go in. It's like Disney World to them. It's, you know, and it's like, that's their backyard but they're excluded from it because they don't have the finances. 
Um, and the ones that are involved are typically the ones that work within the, the reserves, but their stories are not necessarily included when they talk about the conservation plans of those places. And, and it's like, until we start looking at all of these interconnected elements of it, which all factor in, and these stories and the, all these different people that are involved, um, we're doing a disservice, I think, yeah. in whatever steps we're taking. Yes, and I would add that, um, just think about, actually, I thought I had just went whoop, um, a couple, no, one, no. another, <laughs> um, oh, leaders. So I thought I, I thought about this is that um, not only do we need to include stories but we need to include the the leaders the um not just not just have the stories be told and celebrate the stories but actually m invite these people to be at the table i've right. been finding myself thinking a lot about that song in hamilton about um being in the room or right. um it's not how the it's not how the words go but being being lucky enough to be in the room where it happened that's what yeah. it's called and who gets to be in the room where it happens and who is, is that table have two sides or is it a round table? Right. And who has the microphone? Is there only one microphone? And if so, that's okay, but who's holding it? And are we, you know, not just including people at the table, but are we're, we're electing them to be part of boards and we're selecting them to serve in leadership and we're, we're, saying that no matter who you are you get to be part you're part of this community and this board and decision-making body reflects the community right. and and so i just think about you know my table i try really hard to make it really round and not it's not a two-sided table um because that's really boring and it's not really how the world works and um that's like so so all of this is just it's also interconnected and i think that we're um the way we've been taught to live whether in any in any um, academic, or not even academics, in any realm of professionalism, professional field or wherever, is that we're very siloed. It's like, well, what will tell us about what you do for a living? Well, right. I'm an engineer. Right. I'm a banker. I'm a teacher. It's never. It's it's. There's not always a lot of space for this like broader, pers broader, messy explanation. And I think if we were to see the world as environmental issues are not environmental issues. They're not like the separate thing that we're now, it's now two o'clock and now it's time we work on environmental issues. Put this no, no, no. <laughs> it's like, I'm an architect, I build buildings and I see the world through the lens of understanding climate change and understanding poor people. So I'm gonna build buildings in that perspective or I'm a, I'm a, a finance guy or gal and I'm gonna consider climate change and poor people as I design my financial lending yeah make yeah, sure whatever it is but it's not something that's like it's not don't just put that on the shelf and pull it off when it's convenient to work on it right it's like we have to do this work it's this lens again it's a lens for it's whether it's whatever it's a lens for how we have to do everything right this is interesting this is what i was thinking of um and it so goes to what you were just saying in a way i mean instead of ego being like us being at the top but that also being like white male european at the top it's like if that were at the table it's like we have to think of it from the perspective of it's all interconnected mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and all of us, all of us, all of our stories and all of the stuff within this planet besides us. Um, and it's messy. It's, oh, wait, it's so messy. messy, it's, so messy. It's, hard, it's messy, hard work. And it's, again, giving ourselves permission to be raggedy and giving ourselves permission to assume the best intent of other people and, and be comfortable enough in our own skin to be wrong and, and be able to be like, oh, you're right. I should do it. You know, I, I, now I have another perspective and now I can and move forward with that new, newer idea that's maybe more accurate right. and, and, and be ready to know that what you, what's true today it's probably not going to be true tomorrow. It might not be. And that's okay. There's no like any, there's no judgment with that. Right. Um, but that's pretty radical. Most, most people aren't able to work in that, that space because of so many different things that are, they have so many pressures and so many external, whether they're perceived or actual pressures, they're, they, they, they feel, they feel that they're there and they're their reality and that's valid too. Right. So there's, um, it, it seems pretty idealistic to do what I'm saying and I get that. And at the same time, I think it's something that we need to be striving for to be able to tear down those barriers and, and work with people at these such basic levels to help them remember that their perspective matters and that they matter and that all these things that hold them back from being their true, their true selves is actually holding back the entire community from thriving in its true self as a bigger community. And, I mean, that's powerful stuff. And it's yeah. a life, it's a life, it's generations of work. Oh yeah. No, this is not going to happen tomorrow. And it's like, and I think that's part maybe what is keeping people from even doing it is there's that, I know like chatting with people about, well, how can I help? I'm just one person. It's like, <laughs> everything starts with the first step. You know, it's like, yeah. you get yourself to go running in the morning, you put on a <laughs> pair of shoes and walk out the door. Like that's yeah. the first step. You don't even have yes. to run a step, but you still have to put on the shoes and get out the door to be able to do it in the first place. It's like, it's just getting you on that road and you've just got to get yourself on that road by taking that first step. And it might be a baby step and it probably will be, but without taking that, no one's ever going anywhere. Like it's just never going to change. And so it's empowering, which is what it really so much of what you're doing. It's empowering people, empowering teenagers, empowering adults and, and the whole community to, to say, we can do this. I can do this. I have something to contribute and I have a, a role and I have, I mean, I'm important. Like my voice matters and, and everybody's does. And that's the thing is like, we keep getting, like you're saying, certain people are being told that their voice matters more than others. And, and that's not a fair representation because it's not a representation. It's, it's completely skipping so much. Yeah. And when that has been ingrained in your DNA for generations, it takes, it's, it's not so easy to just say, you know, I, you know, talking to a, an individual to say, I, 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 I want to know what you think. I care about you. I really do. What you think really does matter. That can take, that can be a very long, challenging conversation because they don't, they've, it's in their, it's in their DNA to not believe that because they've, right. they're culturally, they've been held back for so, for generations. Right. And to try to, to change that will take a generation at least, I would imagine. But but we can all, every one of us can change, can begin to create, to build that change just by getting to know your neighbors and realizing that just because they're different than you doesn't mean that they're, 
anything less. They actually might actually make your life more fulfilling. Right. <laughs> and and but but giving them the time of day, even though they may be of a different social economic world than you are, they may be of, of a different culture. But get to know them and invite them to your table. Right. Whether your table is out in the yard and you're sitting six feet apart or you're <laughs> or it's a Zoom know, call. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But I mean literally we've been having Wednesday night front yard dinner um, the last few months with with six feet apart. But the point in in the front yard, we're sitting in the front yard because we want to see the people who walk down the street right. to be able to say hi and not be so isolated. And that's extremely intentional to be in the we we carry the front the 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 deck table around the house to the front yard and put it in the front yard and all there's about six of us that have dinner together. And, and that's important. I think that's what's so fascinating about social media is that it's called social media and it's meant to be quote unquote interacting with people, but it's actually made us more isolated and lonely as all these studies keep showing. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're not as we're connected because we can't unplug, but in terms of the actual connection like that, that, one-on-one -on -one where you get to spend time and you just even get to see someone's face while they're talking to you mm -hmm. and their body language and how do they talk and um, what things really are. It's, it's so different when you can't hide behind a computer and you just are you. And um, yeah, it's, it's so necessary too. Like you said, it's like there's no moving forward without like, even opening your front door. So Awesome. Yeah. Lansara, thank you so much. So yeah, thank you. Here's my question for you. And I guess you pretty much kind of answered it, but if you were to tell anyone with a kid and adults, whatever, what is one thing that they could do today? One, my tiny thing, big thing, whatever, one thing that they can do today, like if they can start doing that, they think you help, think will make a more positive impact, but they can use sort of their voice to make a positive impact on the world around them. Um, I think that at a most basic level is they need to take the opportunity to see what's right in front of them, take off their headphones, their earbuds, and be quiet and be in the backyard, be in the front yard, be on the sidewalk, wherever they may be, and notice what's in front of them. And whether that's other people or that's a tree or that's a crack in the sidewalk, to start to just notice what's there and take note of it. And, and, and then be able to start to sh talk about that with somebody and, and share that with somebody and communicate that with somebody and then, and then start to ask more questions about it and to engage in that conversation with it, whether with this, a little brother or sister or an aunt or uncle or whoever is in their lives, their parents. And, but just turn off the noise and start to notice what's around you. Because I think the curiosity is that um, part of our DNA, that's part of how we're wired, it will come back. You can, you can bring it back even though it's been suppressed or taught out of you by about fourth grade. Um, that curiosity and that, and that sense of wonder. And, and whether you're a 10-year-old or a 50-year-old, I have the same advice. And be ready to be astonished by what you see and hear and notice. That's awesome. I love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Sarah. I really go read some Mary, it. Go read some Mary Oliver poetry. I know, right? Oh, she's, she's one of my absolute all-time favorites. That's um, where the astonished part comes from. Yeah, right? 
she, she like manages to capture it all in 10 words, but like my yeah. whole brain is trying to formulate for hours. Well, thank you doesn't... so much for being so interested. And it's always a pleasure and a gift to be able to, to share what I think about, because I don't always get to talk about, I don't any, think any of us really get a chance sometimes to, to really talk about what we're really passionate about and kind of how we perceive the world. And um, I mean, I write about it in a journal or talk about it here and there, but I just really appreciate the opportunity. It means a lot. Well, like you said, it's a round table. It's got to be a round table and everybody's voice matters. And well, I really appreciate- Thanks for taking the time. Uh, well, <laughs> no, I, I, time. thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that you're taking the time and what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing and your, 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 your mission with everything. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's fantastic. So Sarah Johnson, it's wildroseeducation.com. Awesome. Well, Sarah- Thank you, Genevieve. And have a wonderful rest of the summer. You too. You too. Take Take care. care. You've been listening to Nature Knows, conversations with wild warriors and change makers. I'm your host, Jen Vitenzo. And if you want to find out more about today's guest, Sarah Johnson, you can head on over to wildroseeducation.com. It's wildroseeducation.com. I'll be sure to add a link in the podcast description. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on with the series, visit lateshiftmedia.com, where you can find additional information about the guests, the work they're doing, and any cool links they recommend you check out. Late Shift Media is also where you can go to find out about upcoming episodes and future guests and where you can sign up to stay up to date with the series. Again, it's lateshiftmedia.com. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you have an amazing day.